So that brings us to the last section, and that's chapters 33 through 48. In chapters 33 through 48, this is now where he's going to focus more on restoration. Now, there's still going to be some judgments in there, but the tone is going to switch where we've been having tons of judgment with very little restoration promises. Now we're going to have mostly restoration with very little judgment. So the, the emphasis is going to tilt. Now what's interesting with this book is that most books that we've read through, the predominant number of prophets have been mostly judgment. And then like the last paragraph, maybe chapter of the book, is promises of restoration. Or other books like Hosea, they're just mostly judgment. you got a little hope there, a little hope there, and then it ends with some hope. With Ezekiel, pretty much chapters 33 through 48 is mostly hope. And so he's going to kind of focus on and zero in on the promise of restoration more than any of the other prophets have up to this point. So in chapter 33, kind of is the pivot from the first section. It's kind of hard to know, like, do you put chapter 33 in the previous section where it was mostly about judgment? Because this is going to be him finding about Jerusalem being destroyed. So in chapter 33, this servant kind of runs in into his house. Remember, he's in Babylon. He has no idea um, that Israel has been judged. So it's 585. And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar II came in to Jerusalem and he brought it all down. This is where Zedekiah fled with his family. He chased Zedekiah down. He killed his family in front of him. He blinded him. He shipped him off to be imprisoned in Babylon and exiled. Then he went back to Jerusalem and he burned everything to the ground. He tore the temple down. He pushed these stones. This is amazing. These stones are huge. They're like the size of two of these banquet tables. And when, 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 the, when they rebuild it, they're going to be even bigger than that. And he has men push these like several ton stones off the side of the Temple Mount because he was so determined to not leave one stone left on top of another. And the Romans are going to do the same thing. In fact, when the Romans do it, they're going to take stones that are wider than this room. And they're like several tons in weight. And they're almost higher than, they're actually, they are taller than me. And they're going to push them off the Temple Mount. And you can go there to this day, and you can see them. They've hit the ground at the bottom so hard that it's just led these huge divots in the ground, and nobody's moved them since then because they're so huge. This is how determined they were to destroy everything. And Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing, and probably some of these stones were reused in other buildings because a lot of times they scavengers went in and grabbed these stones and rebuilt them in other buildings. And so he destroyed everything. He burned the city down. He took the last of the people into exile in Babylon, all those who did not resist him. Those who did, he killed them. And then he, he went to Jeremiah, and because Jeremiah and a few of his friends were actually loyal to Babylon in the sense of don't resist Babylon. They were loyal because God told them to be loyal. And he said, I'll let you live. And he put Gedaliah in as a governor. We already talked about that. And he gave Jeremiah a choice do you want to stay here or do you want to go to exile with me? And Jeremiah stayed there. And, of course, they kidnapped him, his own people, and took him to Egypt. So all that's happening in 586. And Nebuchadnezzar leaves. But remember, Ezekiel has no idea this is happening. I mean, he's four, five, six hundred miles north in Babylon in a refugee camp. And he doesn't know this is happening. 
And it's not like they have like Facebook or CNN or any of that kind of stuff. So it's going to take several months for messengers to carry this. So several months later, in 585, Ezekiel is sitting in his house, and this guy comes running in, exhausted. He's a messenger, and he's wearing sackcloth because he's mourning destruction. He tells Ezekiel that Jerusalem has been destroyed, obviously several months ago. And at this point, it becomes obvious to Ezekiel, who wasn't surprised because he's a prophet, but it becomes obvious to the people in exile that God said this is going to happen. It did. And not only were the people in Jerusalem shocked that this actually happened, but the people in exile were actually shocked too because they thought they were going to, it was, exile was a little while, and they were going to go back to um, Jerusalem soon. And at this point, they realized that they have been kidnapped by Nebuchadnezzar. They've been carted off to Babylon. They're living in refugee camps, and they're scattered throughout Babylon. Some are like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in prominent places. Some are in refugee camps. Some are just in villages. And they realize home is gone. There's no hope of returning to home because home no longer exists. And so this becomes a devastating chapter where everything has come to an end. This is pivotal because one could say this belongs to the previous section because that was all judgment. But that was mostly judging the nations. But another one says it doesn't really fit this section because it's mostly promises and restoration. But it kind of does fit with this section because those promises and restoration cannot happen until the promises of destroying Jerusalem have finally happened. And God made it very clear to Jeremiah and Ezekiel that the promise of rest, the destruction of Jerusalem would bring an end to God's wrath. So in some sense, this is a good thing because finally the judgment of God is over with. And now they can begin to look forward to the promises, knowing that God is satisfied. So that news of Jerusalem's destruction kicks off this final section of the promise of restoration to Israel that God is going to go through. Kind of like the death and resur- the death of Christ. In some ways, that is absolutely the most depressing thing that has ever happened in human history. Yet without it, it can't launch the most amazing thing that has ever happened in human history. And that's kind of the, not, they're not exactly the same, but that's the way to look at the destruction of Jerusalem. That without that judgment being satisfied, Without God being satisfied that Jerusalem is destroyed, he can't launch into the blessings and the restoration in that sense. So now he begins to address the leaders of Jerusalem and Israel. Now remember from this point on, Israel is Israel. It's all 12 tribes. Everybody is either dead or in exile. There's no more divided kingdom because it's They're all in exile now and scattered. And now the promises are for all of Israel, all tribes, to be restored back to the land. So chapter 34, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Shepherds are a metaphor for the leaders of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, and you slaughter the choice animal, but you do not feed the sheep. So you are supposed to take care of sheep instead of you use them to feed yourself and make yourself wealthy. You have not strengthened the weak and healed the sick, 
bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the loss. But with force and harshness you have ruled over them. They were scattered because they had no shepherd, and they became food for every wild beast. That would be the other nations. The reason these sheep got devoured by the other nations is because you failed to be godly shepherds leading the sheep into godliness. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the entire face of the earth with no one looking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As surely as I live, declares sovereign Yahweh, my sheep have become prey and have become food for all the wild beasts. There was no shepherd. My shepherds did not search for my flock, but fed themselves and did not feed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. This is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Look, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from their hand. I will no longer let them be shepherds. The shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. I will rescue my sheep from their mouth so that they will no longer be the food for them. So he's condemning them. Now notice the language here. You did not feed my sheep. You did not strengthen them. You did not go searching for them and take care of them. This is the language that Jesus uses of himself. And this shepherd language that he uses in the Second Testament is rooted in these prophets. It's rooted in these prophets. The, the Pharisees and the Israelites who know the prophets, they would immediately recognize the language when Jesus is talking. And this is, this is why I think going through the First Testament is so powerful. Because when you read the First Testament and study it, you realize that what Jesus, nothing that Jesus is saying is new. Now, I'm not trying to demean him in any kind of way, like he's not original. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is a lot of times we're like in the Gospels and we think, wow, that's a cool idea or that's a cool idea. It's not new because this is the plan of God that he's been developing for thousands of years. And he's already laid the metaphorical language down and the narratives and the prophets and the Psalms. And all Jesus is doing is picking up the words and picking up the plans that God himself has laid out and he's bringing it to fulfillment. And he's using these words so that they will pick up on it. Because here's the thing, Jesus can't do anything new that the prophets haven't laid out. Because one of the things that Jesus, one of the things that's been pounded, and I've mentioned this before, one of the things that's been pounded into Israel's head is there's only one God. And you're not allowed to go after any other gods. If Jesus comes along and does something new, one could easily say he's a different God. If he acts in a different way, if he reveals a new attribute of Yahweh, or a new character trait of Yahweh, or a new revelation of Yahweh, then one can say he's not Yahweh. He's different. So one of the ways that Jesus has to show that he is Yahweh, the Father and I are one, and if you knew the Father, you would know me, is by doing only what has already been done before through Yahweh. So he will be the same attributes of God. He will carry the same names of God. He will have the same character of God. He will talk the same way as God. He will act in the same way, and he will continue the same revelation. So that when the Pharisees and the Israelites and everybody look at him, they will see God and they will recognize him. And that's why he says, if you love me and you knew the Father, you would recognize me and love me. And that's very important for you to understand that this is why 
you need the first testament so that you truly recognize that Jesus and the Father are one. But here's the other thing. Because God doesn't reveal anything new about himself in the second testament, you can't get to know God without the first testament. Now, yes, there's passages in Peter and James and Paul's writings that says God is love and God is compassion and God is just and God is long-suffering. But that's not knowing somebody. That's just reading descriptions on a youth room poster. Okay, that doesn't teach you about anybody. I can say, oh, your love and your, your compassion. I'm like, okay, but I can say that about lots of people. It's only when you see God doing those things in the First Testament that you get to know him. And this is why we're very much robbing ourselves when we say we are a Second Testament church or a New Testament church, or we focus only on the Gospels or only on Paul's writings, because you can't know God. You can know facts about him, dictionary words about him, but you can't know him without the first testament. And Jesus even said this, if you knew the Father, you would know me. That's how you recognize me, by reading the first testament. So this is why it's so important that we go through the first testament in depth. Because once you begin to do this, one, you begin to realize, wow, these two things are connected. Because for a long time, the church has taught like these are two. That first testament belonged to the Jews, and they killed Jesus, and that's bad, so let's ignore it. And the New Testament is Jesus and love and compassion. And that's what we focus on. We don't realize that they're the same because we're not reading both of them. And the other disadvantage is then you don't re- understand half the things that Jesus is saying. What we end up doing is we interpret it through American culture rather than through First Testament culture. And that's why it's so important to do this, especially if you want to understand the really complicated books like Daniel and Revelation. Now, I'm not saying I understand Revelation. I'm just saying you get a lot closer to understanding them when you understand the First Testament than you do without the First Testament. This is what God is doing. He's laying the foundational language and metaphors and foundations for what Jesus is going to pick up on. And so he judges these prophets and says, I will be their shepherd. Now, God, Yahweh is specifically saying, I will be their shepherd. And it's singular there. It's a singular proclamation. Verse 11, For this is what Sovereign Yahweh says, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out the flock when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will seek out my flock, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy, dark day. That's the judgment. I will bring them out from among the peoples and gather them from the foreign countries. I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, my streams, and all the inhabited places of the land. And a good pasture I will feed them. The mountain heights of Israel will be their pasture, and they will lie down in lush pasture, and they will feed on rich grasses in the mountains of Israel. I myself will feed the sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the sovereign Yahweh. I will seek the lost and bring the strays. I will banish the injured and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Now, the fat and the strong, remember, are the, the, the bad shepherds. It's the weak sheep that he's going to do this. Now, notice that this sounds exactly like Jesus' parables. All those parables about shepherds and gathering the lost, and this is Jesus. 
Verse 17, as for you, my sheep, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Look, I'm about to judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must trample the rest of the pastures with your feet. When you drink clean water, must you muddy the rest of the water by trampling with the feet. As for my sheep, they must eat what you trampled with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet. So he says, I will judge you. I will be the one. No longer will you judge. I will judge you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says to them. Look, I myself will bring judgment between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with your side and your shoulder and thrust your horns at all the weak sheep until you scatter them abroad. Now, horns, remember, were symbolic of power and authority in the ancient world. I will save my sheep, and they will no longer be prey. I will judge between one sheep and another. Now, notice all this language is very personal, very intimate, very directly involved in among them. Verse 23, I will set one shepherd over them, and he will feed them, namely my servant David. He will feed them, and he will be their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be their prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Now, he's like, I, 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 I. And all of a sudden, drastically, he shifts to, and I will give my shepherd power, and he will be the divine of David. And all of a sudden, you have this beginning that the Davidic descendant and Yahweh are the same. Now, you can't prove that here with just these words. But this sets the foundation that Jesus, God says, you have one shepherd and it's me. And then he repeats it. I will set one shepherd. If you're setting a shepherd over them, that's somebody else. And he will rule over you. And he calls it the Davidic line. Then there is the beginning of that oneness there. Now, the Jews would interpret this, that the Davidic king would have been so connected to Yahweh, and he would be so doing exactly what Yahweh wanted to do all the time, that that explains the oneness language that is here. The problem is that the first time since already proven, no human can be that one with God. And so this implies that there's a greater unity than just really good obedience from the Davidic king. Now, obviously, when Jesus comes along, he says, the Father and I are one, and I am the shepherd, and I am the only way. And he becomes and makes it obvious that there really truly is a direct unity there. Verse 25, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and I will rid the land of wild beasts, the foreign nations, so that they can live securely in the wilderness and even sleep in the woods. I will turn them and their regions around my hill into a blessing. I will make showers come down in their seasons, and they will be showers that bring blessing. And the trees of the field will yield their fruit of the earth and will yield his crops. They will live securely on the land, and they will know that I am Yahweh when I break the bars of the yoke and rescue them from the land, hand of those who enslave them. They will no longer be prey for the nations, and the wild beasts will no longer devour them. They will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. I will prepare for them a healthy planting. And they will no longer be victims of famine in the land and will no longer bear the insults of nations. Then they will know that I, Yahweh, am their God, and I am with them, and that they are my people, and the house of Israel declares the sovereign Yahweh. And you, my sheep, and the sheep of my pasture are my people, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Yahweh. So then he goes back to him being the shepherd language. But notice the finality of this. Never again will you be victims. 
Never again will you have famine. Never again will you go be consumed by the wild nations around you. Now, Deuteronomy made it clear that Israel would keep sinning and they would keep experiencing famine and keep being consumed by the nations around them. But now Yahweh says, never again. And that taps into the language that we've already seen with the prophets that he's going to do something where sin is no longer going to be existing in the world. The only way that the judgments of Deuteronomy do not get poured out on us is if there's no sin. Moses made it very clear that we're hard-hearted, we will always sin, and therefore these judgments will always come unless our hearts are circumcised. And that's what the prophets have been setting up for, is that a day is coming that God will do that, and we won't have to fear the judgments of Deuteronomy anymore, which is also hinting at the fact that we'll no longer be under that covenant anymore, which we've already talked about, and that will go even deeper. And so this is what he begins to lay out. So he's setting this up for a deeper language. So then he condemns Edom in chapter 35 and 36 for attacking and mistreating Israel when they were in exile. So when Nebuchadnezzar II came and destroyed them, Edom took advantage of that and made money off of it. He grabbed some of them and he took them in exile. Remember, Edom is the nation south east of Israel, of the Dead Sea. And, it took a, and remember, God always targets Edom more than anybody else. When we get to the post-exilic prophets, he will write a whole book called Obadiah against Edom. And you're like, why is he always picking on Edom? Because Edom is a descendant of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. And so of anybody who is more related to Israel than anybody else, more directly related, it's Edom. And therefore, he holds them to a higher standard because Edom was also part of the Abrahamic covenant. And yes, there were some others like Ammon and Moab and all of them who were descendants of Abraham and part of the Abrahamic covenant. But Edom is more directly related because he was the brother of Jacob, who became the father of the 12 tribes. So God tends to go after Edom more than any other nation because they should know better. 